Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And Ed, you... um, I love you. I love you. You look, Ed, like you... um, Got dragged to the your, our <laughs> podcasting studio on the back of a truck or something like that, like under the truck. Like, what? Are you okay? <laughs> I I am. You, a little you bit, look you look yeah. like you're having a rough morning. I I accept. I am a little déshabillé this morning. <laughs> I apologize for my appearance. I, oh, you needn't apologize. I just want to make sure you're all right. No, no, I'm I'm fine mostly. I and I. It is ironic since I just emailed out a newsletter about dressing well. So. <laughs> That's, and I've just taken a screenshot for the show notes so oh, that uh, people will know what, I'm, what I'm talking about. I'm glad. You, uh, it was a long night. I had a long night. I have I had serious writer's block on my newsletter, which kept me up all night. And, um, and it was a bit of a hurried morning, and um, we have some guests coming for the weekend, so I've been trying to run around moving furniture, shifting things to, to better accommodate them. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's been an evening and a morning. So (laughs) I'm very sorry to hear that. Um, my real question though, is, are you ready? Is that going to be an issue? Are you ready to podcast? You ready to go? You ready? I am enthused. This is, this is literally where I eat. I am ready to go. Let's do it. What are we talking about? Fantastic. Well, Ed, what are we talking about is a great question. And I want to put you in the driver's seat there. You often, um, make little, you know, um, remarks that would suggest that I take you by surprise or don't give you enough uh, control over what we talk about. So today, Ed, it's entirely up to you. You can choose the conversation behind door number one or the conversation behind door number two. And I'm not going to try to influence you. I'm happy either way. I want you to feel like you have agency here. And again, you choose the conversation behind door number one or the conversation behind door number two. It's a, Either one will be, I think, a great Catholic conversation. Okay, so uh, just to be clear, you're you're giving me control over what we're going to talk about by allowing me to pick blind between two options that you have. The chosen. lady or the tiger, Condon? Which one's it going to be? Uh, I will I will pick door number one, please. Door number one, great. Because oh, you th- you think I'm a contrarian, so you would naturally expect me to pick door number two. <laughs> <laughs> they both contained iocane powder. I spent years developing an immunity to it. <laughs> okay. I want to talk then, if if you've opened door number one, and, and again, we don't have to talk about this the whole time, but it's where I want to start off. I want to start off by talking about what everybody's talking about. Um, I want to talk about the um, headlines last week and the response this week in the Archdiocese of New York City uh, regarding the funeral of transgender activist Cecilia Gentili, uh, which was which took place last week at St. Patrick's Cathedral and... Um, and has been, if you listen to this show, you've heard of it, and you know that it was uh, a liturgy unlike um, any others. It was supposed to be a funeral mass, and then it became sort of this very raucous affair, uh, at which time, even at the very beginning, um, the cathedral, it's not clear to me whether it was the priest celebrant or the MC or the musician, but somebody decided that it wouldn't be a funeral mass, it would be a liturgy of the word, and uh, and then um, things really kind of took took a turn at the time of the eulogies, which were, um, to say the least, um, there were several of them. And and I'm sorry, in the Archdiocese of New York, they don't call them eulogies. They call them, in their funeral guidelines, they call them words of remembrance. Um, and in those in those words of remembrance, things really took a turn as um, as people lobbied for, um, for things which I think Pope Francis would call gender ideology, for things which seem to contravene the doctrine of the church regarding um, 
sexual orientation and gender identity issues. And um, there was a moment in which two men, one of whom was dressed as a woman, kissed in the sanctuary of the church. And there were uh, all, all kinds of um, profanities used. It was very bad behavior. This sort of got made its way out into the public square on um, on Friday, and uh, the archdiocese Surprising. of New York you put a thousand political activists in a church, and news of it will leak out. I, right? Who would have thought? And notify the New York Times and um, and give the New York Times quotes about it. Car- I mean, uh, is there Car- anyone on the sort of liberal progressive wing of the New York Church that doesn't have the New York Times on speed dial at this point? I feel like they've become kind of the church blotter of. NYC. Is that unfair? No, I, I actually was surprised. I had expected that. You'll remember a few years, a few uh, months ago. Gosh, <sighs> lots happening very quickly. Um, you'll remember a few months ago when Father James Martin did this um, fiducia supplicants blessing, at which the you know which he which he said was a spontaneous blessing in accord with fiducia supplicants, and then also the the person, the men who were blessed, conceded that Father Martin had invited them to come and be blessed and had at the same time invited a New York Times photographer. So I had actually expected when I saw this story in the New York Times about this funeral at St. Pat's that it would have been the same reporter, but it wasn't. It was a different Or oh, you would journalist. have expected it was the same Jesuit priest behind it. But. Well, <laughs> Father Martin, you know, gave comments to the New York Times about this in which he said that he thought it was wonderful and all this. Of course he did. And, and, and said initially that he had been invited to preach, but he was away. He was at the, Los, the, the Religious Education Congress. He was speaking on behalf of the Archdiocese, at the invitation of the Archdiocese. Of Los Angeles, he when was he was speaking at the the RE conference in LA. Yeah, the, he the, wasn't the dancing. Official, no, he was speaking at the official catechetical congress of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles at the time when he would have otherwise been preaching at this funeral for. Uh, I would find both activist. the RE congress in LA and Father James Martin much more interesting if if he were in the sort of flowing gauzy robes with liturgical the flower dance. pot of incense and doing the liturgical <laughs> dances. I'd tune in for that. The Religious Ed Congress, if you don't know, in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles is a very creative approach to liturgy with much liturgical dancing. You can find some photos on our website. Uh, I recently learned, this is an aside, we're coming back to the funeral, but Ed, I recently learned, so the Religious Education Congress has been this very controversial thing in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles for a long time because uh, it has traditionally been a sort of um, home space, a gathering moment for um, Catholics in the church who would propose to to um, re-examine the church's teaching on moral theology and sexual medical morality and these kinds of things. It has traditionally been a place for much liturgical experimentation and for, on the whole, singing a new church into being. And, um, you know, when Archbishop Jose Gomez replaced Cardinal Roger Mahoney as Archbishop of Los Angeles, a lot of people thought that Gomez would effectively kill the uh, kill the Congress, that um, you know he would find that to be incompatible with his own sort of theological uh, leanings and his intention for the diocese, and uh, he would kill it. He hasn't. Um, people you know, who he are, turns up, doesn't he? He, he goes. Yeah, he does. He turn opens up. it. Pe- people who are close to Gomez say, you know, the Archbishop has only had so only has so much time in Los Angeles, and there were so many issues, and you know, many people. Um, celebrate Archbishop Gomez for a real reform of the the St. John Seminary in Camarillo. So there's they they point to the things that he's accomplished, but and I was surprised to learn uh, recently that the Religious Education Congress of the Archdiocese of Los Angeles, which sort of touts high attendance, um, you know, and says that we have so many people who are gathering to come to this, is actually required continuing education for um, catechists and I believe teachers in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. So. Oh, so if you're if you're a catechist in 
the Archdiocese of LA, you are required to go and watch the 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 sort of soul train of of yoga chicks doing their doing their thing in front of the altar. Yeah. So, um, well, that would let vex me, just... me if I was if that was my job. I would be annoyed by that. <laughs> I mean, you uh, say you... the thing is a is a hot bit of liturgical experimentation. I, I it's, no, perhaps it, yeah. Maybe it's, it does, it seems that. rather staid to me. Um, you know, the whole thing, the liturgy that I saw over which um, Cardinal Robert McElroy presided. Um, the whole thing looked like a scene from a Dino De Laurentiis movie. Like it was straight out of the early '80s version of you know little dinky um, pots of incense being carried by people. I don't doing know this sort who of, Dino you know, De Laurentiis is. I wish I did. He's but a movie me, producer. He's, like, a, like a scene from Star Trek. Uh, no, I, I would go the other way. Dino De Laurentiis is, is, was a movie producer famous for su- producing such films as Conan the Barbarian, and um, oh. you know that kind of sword and sorcery, sorcery late '70s schlock. You know, not bad movies. I, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I like them. Um, it just very stylized, very of the age. Yeah, it was very, very stylized, and 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 uh, and so, yeah. So it's catechists. So religious educators in the Archdiocese of Los Angeles. One of them told me, uh, a religious educator told me that they're required to attend. And so, I, like one thing that surprises me about that is that even dropping that requirement, I would think would dramatically change the landscape of the Religious Education Congress in terms of the number of registered attendees and things like that. Well, maybe like they're that. being cunning. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's aversion therapy. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't think that, I don't think that's so. It would work on me. <laughs> I don't think that's so. You give... You tend to give people uh, and their motives and strategies uh, more credit than I do, and perhaps I ought to take a page from your book and give people... Uh, extend to people the the courtesy of presuming uh, cunning. Well, maybe uh, I'm overthinking it. Maybe we should just the maybe the most obvious answer to the sort of theoretical question you have um, you've put forward uh, as to why Archbishop Gomez uh, hasn't you know changed any of these provisions or requirements. Maybe the simple answer is because he likes it. That would be a simple answer. That, it would that be- seems to me to be the most good faith obvious explanation is that yeah it would be surprising sort of knowing gomez's liturgical formation and orientation that he's a priest of opus day and those kinds of things it would be surprising to me it would seem to me that the most that the more a more likely answer is just that he didn't it is not a it's not a hill on which he has wanted to die it is not the battle he has wanted to fight and perhaps he has had the thought that over time a sort of demographics would resolve the religious education congress's problems on their own although it doesn't the passage of that. time isn't something that seems to affect the RE Congress in LA. It's always it 1974 there. Be very much sitting in a moment of time, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. That was an aside. Um, let's come back to the funeral if we can. Uh, so, um, yeah, Father Martin was supposed to celebrate it. The New York Times was there. This was a big kerfluffle, which initially the archdiocese um, – defended. A, a spokesman told me on Friday, you know, everyone deserves a funeral and uh, burying the dead is a corporal work of mercy and these kinds of things without addressing the criticisms of the liturgy or the criticisms of the funeral itself. And then on Saturday, the rector of the cathedral came out with a surprisingly strong statement um, in which he disavowed the entire thing and called it sacrilegious and said that it was disrespectful and said that a massive reparation had been celebrated or had been celebrated at the request or directive of, of Cardinal Dolan. Uh which was a big flip-flop for the archdiocese and, you know, a cynic, which I'm not, would note that um, the flip-flop seemed to coincide with the 
growth in pushback from Catholics on this issue. Um, I do think, though, that it is probably the case that at first the Archdiocese of, of New York didn't realize the degree to which there would be pushback on this issue, but th- there was, and, 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 and here we are. Uh, do you have any initial thoughts out about the funeral? I, there's a particular element of this whole thing that I want to discuss, but I, I want to le- give you the floor in case there are any initial thoughts I, you want to offer or observations. Well, so as near as I've understood it, um, the, the primary question that's being asked of the Archdiocese of New York, in which they've sought to answer in different ways, is how did this happen? How could mm-hmm. this possibly have happened? And the the sort of party line, as I've understood it, is, well, we were kind of sandbagged here. We didn't realize. We didn't know. And Which, interestingly, there's a whole group of trans activists in the Archdiocese of New York who say that's not true at all. When we scheduled the thing, which we did by calling, we ur- urged the Archdiocese to Google Cint- Cecilia Gentili and understand yeah. who this person was and what this would represent. Um, I've never tried to book St. Patrick's Cathedral, but my experience in, in booking large-scale church events over the course of my life has been there's usually some scrutiny. Right. They usually want to know who you are and what you want it for. So right. I am somewhat surprised that yeah. uh, this th- this managed to all fly under the radar and catch people by surprise. I find that hard to believe. Yeah, I, I do too. Again, I don't know the scheduling protocol for uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, but I did speak with um, with folks in the Archdiocese of New York who have experience of this, most especially clerics who said they don't, they, they found it a little bit implausible to think that someone just called up and said, could we book a funeral? And the cathedral said, sure, that given the... Uh, noteworthiness of St. Patrick's Cathedral that if Saint, if the if the cathedral were that open with funerals, um, it would do nothing but funerals because- Yeah, presumably everybody would want yeah. one. Yeah. So Which it, again, I do think, suggests that you need a certain status to be able to book the thing. I think that, I do think the most likely reality is that in one way, they the cathedral knew something about who Cecilia Gentili was and said, kind of let's go ahead, and then it got out of hand and they've tried to distance themselves from it. That seems to me to be the most likely explanation. Now, one interesting element to me about this is that um, while Cardinal Dolan has jumped in in the past couple of days, especially on his radio show, to say that the the way that people acted at the funeral was disrespectful and these kinds of things, um, he has praised the cathedral staff for their the way they handled the liturgy, but he has not indicated any curiosity or intention to like look into this question about how this funeral happened, or whether there will be any accountability for uh, that, or even any sort of policy revision or anything like that. So that's one interesting element of uh, of all of this. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Didn't he call the Didn't he call the priest celebrant a hero? A hero, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and why did he call which, him a hero? What What was heroic about that? He switched from it being a uh, a mass to to having a liturgy of the word basically he he felt that that was an appropriate way to handle it and i do have some empathy for the priest celebrant in that you know he he's not the rector of the cathedral he does, he's a supply guy he's a religious priest he's a supply guy and um if he didn't know if he just sort of had the funeral and then walked in and that was the situation that would be an, an extraordinary thing to figure out how to handle i mean well, the I imagine he must have known something about the person Whose funeral he was officiating beforehand? It's it's reasonably typical in my experience that priests will will ask for some information about the person whose funeral they're saying for the purposes of informing their homily or I don't know. I sometimes think, someone you know it's just a, especially a retired guy. It's like, can you take the, my funeral at ten o'clock? Sure, I, I, I'm anything, saying it's yeah. you know I, I think that's normal. Although I would say, and this isn't a knock on on, on the priest celebrant, um, but but assuming it was his call. 
to move from having a mass to having a liturgy of the word and I, I've I've seen the the interpretation. I've watched the tape, and I'm it's inconclusive. It's inconclusive. Um, but let's assume, for the sake of argument, that it was his call, and he he said he looked around the cathedral and said, "We're not. I'm not going to distribute communion in this particular circumstance." Um, good for him. I I would disagree slightly with Cardinal Dolan in calling it heroic. I I would say it was it showed a minimum of prudence, and I don't mean a minimum of prudence in the sense of saying it's the least you could do. I, I think if he had done anything else, which I think some people would argue he couldn't, should have done, like saying, "This is not, uh, this is not happening." I'm not, you know, I'm calling a halt to people snogging in the sanctuary, and you know, this, I'm not doing this. This is we're stopping this now. We're stopping what the rector of the cathedral later called a blasphemy, a sacrilegious event in media res. Um, that now, would, that have been, would have been. That would have been, I would argue, heroic in the sense of you're going to catch some heat for this, um, and and I wonder if um, this isn't somewhat emblematic of how many of these hot button issues around public liturgical celebrations with controversial figures in attendance uh, don't often run, which is you just kind of leave the priest to make his own best guess, and the way the bishop of the diocese in place react is usually sort of, you know, it's, well, we'll throw him off the bridge and into the river of public opinion. And if he sinks, he's a witch and, you know, he gets what's coming to him. And if he floats, we'll push him out and call him a hero. Um, do you know what I mean? Like it, I it, do. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I think that's right. So, so all of that, I mean, if I were the priest celebrant, if I were truly caught unawares, I too would want to know, what happened here? I mean, if I were the priest celebrant and I actually caught unawares, I would really want to know what happened here. Because in the context of the liturgy, you know, you say that that would have been heroic. I empathize with anyone who 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 would find themselves in this situation. If that were the situation for the priest that he just sort of was asked to take the 10 o'clock funeral as a supply guy and he showed up and it was this, I have a great deal of sympathy for him. And being in the situation, you know, um, if he were to call, for, as he was in the situation, if he were to just sort of end the liturgy, it would have been um, an extremely much, courageous much, much decision. Bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And I would also say it would have been a much, much, much bigger um, th- thing. You know, I mean, it, it oh, would yeah. have been quite incendiary. And, and I'm not saying that he should not have done it for that reason. I, I'm saying I can see how, that that might have um, – he I'm might have saying, had the yeah. disposition that sort of said, well, let's just get through it and hope we can sort of – Well, and if you are sincerely a supply guy who knows nothing about it and you're just turned up and this is what you've been handed – it's not an unreasonable assumption to say, well, this must be what the cathedral booked and wanted. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to catch hell from them for, for canceling the party. They, they, they planned, you know? Right. Yeah. So, okay. So, so all of that, um, I think needs to be, um, uh, all of that needs to be addressed. And, um, at least from my point of view, there's a, there ought to be a great deal of interest in sort of seeing the understanding the process. And one would expect that there would be now that this has made international headlines, interest from the diocesan bishop in seeing to that it get addressed. And, uh, and, and, and thus far it seems that there's a sort of studied in curiosity about it from the, uh, from the, uh, the, the chancery there at, um, uh, in the archdiocese of New York. Um, so that's one element of things. Um, there's another canonical question, Ed, that I think is an interesting one. If you want to uh, 
uh, if you want to, uh, moving on sort of from the 10-11 question, which is to say, what, what will the Chancery in the Archdiocese of New York do? There's another interesting element about this that, uh, that I think we should talk about, namely um, the scrutinies before a person, a, a person is granted an ecclesiastical funeral and the question of um, Cecilia Gentili's um, self-reported atheism. Have oh, you thought, I didn't have realize you much they were, that? The, the, I didn't realize this person was a was a self reported atheist. Yeah, so Cecilia Gentili gave an interview last year. Um, was asked about um, faith and talked about being an atheist, like going to church and being interested in religion, but also having concluded that uh, that they were an atheist and and um, talking about the experience of going to church without believing in God. Okay, and, we uh, we have a word for that canonically. Well, apostate is the word that you're yes. driving towards, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about Canon 1184. Um, church, if you want to open it, that's fine too. Um, church funerals are to be denied to the following unless they gave some signs of repentance before death. Notorious apostates, heretics, and schismatics. Those who for anti-Christian motives chose that their bodies be cremated. That's not the case in this situation. Uh, other manifest sinners to whom a church funeral could not be granted without public scandal to the faithful. Much of the conversation around this has focused on the other manifest sinners element. Uh, this is a person who was a man who identified as a woman who um, advocated politically for um, uh, what Pope Francis would call gender ideology for um, things which contravene the, the teachings of the church, including a normalization of prostitution and things like that. And so many people have sort of focused on the notion of denying a funeral to, um, quote, other manifest uh, sinners to whom a church funeral could not be granted without public scandal to the faithful. But you raise the point that um, someone who has publicly sort of identified themselves as an atheist may fit into the category of a notorious uh, apostate. Well, if I may. Sure. The... What used to be called the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and before that was called the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, and before that was called the Holy Office of the Universal and Roman Inquisition, um, actually pretty much answered this question. Um, I think in the 40s or 50s. I That's can, where I was going, brother. Yeah, um, because they were asked, well, it is a Catholic who becomes a communist. Are they excommunicated? And the answer was, yeah, absolutely. If you join the Communist Party, the Communist Party, the International Communist Party, uh, is an avowedly atheist institution that you have to affirm that religion is bullshit. If you're going to join that God is a lie, that religion is the opium of the masses, this is a fundamental tenet of this society. So by joining the Communist Party, you are affirming your atheism, and affirming atheism is an act of apostasy, a complete rejection of the Christian faith. So, so if joining a political movement is proof of atheism, which therefore equals apostasy, then you can short circuit that process. And you're like, if you just skip to straight to the public declaration of atheism, a public declaration of atheism, that's apostasy. That I mean, that's I, not, I, I, it's not I, even a gray not, area. And it will not surprise, or it will surprise you, I think, to learn that I agree with you. I'm often shocked. Wait. I have, <laughs> because often I have, high and formalistic bars for um but uh, even for, you agree that going on television and saying i don't believe in god <laughs> believe is sufficient god to constitute a manifestation of apostasy <laughs> <laughs> and is formally notorious right notoriety means is well known yeah and i think there's a kind of formal notoriety which comes from 
uh, having publicly declared a thing in the media, right in the yeah. press. So I mean, nobody uh, really and watches I local also, television, but I think it still counts. No, it was a it was a print interview. It was a oh, it was a print interview. interview. Oh, well, yeah, then it was and real journalism. I think also Gentili had a sort of one uh, one man show, a kind of off Broadway play, in which Gentili also discussed this notion of atheism um, and 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 a complicated relationship. Well, what little I know of this though. person, I imagine that that off Broadway one man show was probably a high minded event. <laughs> <laughs> so um there we have that 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 question though the reason i raised that question is um is because um it seems to me that what the archdiocese of new york has said uh namely when people call and ask for a funeral and the way the cardinal dolan described it he, he said you know look these people called they said they had a friend who died they said that a funeral would be a great consolation to the friends and family and therefore we went ahead and booked the funeral if Canon 1184 is to be taken seriously, it seems to me that what Cardinal Dolan has admitted to is like a gravely negligent and deficient process for funeral planning or an evaluation altogether. Like it seems yeah, to me I that mean, the Cardinal a- has effectively conceded the very problem that people are criticizing him for. Yes. And it's, I mean, it's a totally flawed and, uh, and I'm struggling for, for the right adjective here because I don't want to be, I don't want to use a, a term technically correctly, but come across as being senselessly inflammatory. Um, it is an it is an abuse of the thing to extend it for those reasons to say that oh well we're offering an ecclesiastical funeral in the cathedral um, because it might be a source of consolation to the friends and family of an avowed atheist like that doesn't that that is the same mentality that would say well you should just administer the administer the anointing of the sick to a corpse. Because it'll make you know it'll make people people feel better, feel better right? It's exactly. like that's not yeah. what it's for. You don't do that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's right. I I was thinking eleven eighty four. I was hoping we could have a canonical discussion about this because I don't want to talk about eleven eighty four without talking about it in in toto. Because I want to talk about sort of the lessons for the church um, more broadly here. But um, church funerals are to be denied to the following. Um, I'm going to skip the next clause for a minute, and that includes notorious apostates, heretics, and schismatics. This is a restriction of a, of the right which is established in Canon 11, what 1182, um, uh, or excuse me, in Canon 1183. Oh, it's you're looking for 1176, buddy. Okay, tell me. Canon 1176, paragraph one, deceased members of the Christian faithful Right. So it must be so establishing a right. So then 1184 is a restriction of, of that right, which means that uh, 1184 needs to be interpreted how? Uh, it needs to be ter- interpreted strictly. You have to strictly. You, you have to strictly apply the law. You have to give it a narrow reading. You can't sort of say, well, arguably you could extend it to include this. You have to, it's, it becomes very textual, the interpretation. It's, yeah. It calls for a sort of literalist and pedantic interpretation of the law. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, and, uh, and so, um, on the whole, that means taking each of these things kind of very seriously, what formally is an apostate, what formally is a heretic, what formally is a schismatic, what formally is notoriety. And I think even according to that measure, a person who goes and speaks in the press is those kinds of things. But there's this very, 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 very big Nisi clause here, which I think has to be recognized because I think it's important for people to understand the whole point here. Um, Unless a person gave some sign of repentance before death, um, and how what, how would you read that? I mean, what would be a sufficient sign of repentance before death in your mind? Well, this is where uh, you—I I guess you could call it the sort of 
at the outer end, you you'd go with the sort of Lord Marchmain uh, case of you know someone who is on their deathbed who has vigorously and consistently rejected the church and its pastoral overtures throughout life, but then on the deathbed, the priest shows up, and even though they cannot speak, they make some sign of being glad the priest is there and encouraging them in um, in their imparting of the sacraments, sort of you know attempt to make the sign of the cross or nodding, you know. Um, in response to you know the priest asking certain interrogatories like you know would you like to receive the sacraments do you want a blessing something like that it seems to me that the it's very a low same bar yeah it seems and it seems to me that the strict reading of 1184 requires the lowest possible bar that some sign be taken precisely because we're making a strict reading as broadly as possible here yes. isn't that right yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. But that point kind of goes to me to something that I think is more, <laughs> is a practical and tangible takeaway, which is um, Canon 1184, the discernment of Canon 1184, can this person have a funeral or not, presumes a kind, a certain kind of personal engagement, uh, either on the part of some minister or with those persons who knew the deceased and knew them well and is able to sort of assess these questions and do some evaluation of whether a funeral would be legally appropriate or not. I mean, it seems to me that Canon 1184 is, among other things, a very clear admonition to parishes that a funeral is not to be scheduled without some serious, pastorally toned, but in in interrogatory conversation about the deceased and their relationship to the church, even unto the end. I I would agree. Um, and and I mean I think in this case I mean you know you're not supposed to make windows into into closed pastoral situations and and demand proofs of things that maybe went on in the eternal forum or whatever else. Um, but in this case, it was the family and friends of this person who came forward to request the ecclesiastical funeral and did so for the stated rationale of oh it'll be a great consolation to friends and family. Not this is what this person wanted, uh, and I suspect that if the the cathedral organizing authorities or whatever it said well did they manifest some ex, in a, some external way a reconciliation with the church and the divine and catholic faith before death i i'm going to go out on a limb and say that these people would not have said yes the friends of yeah Saint i don't Saint. think they would say oh yeah yep yep he died a good catholic he died he died a good catholic embraced everything the church teaches absolutely i I think that would have taken the bloom off the rose for them at that particular party that they threw. I suspect um, as much. Yeah, I suspect as much. Can I ask you a question? Certainly. Let's take the the sacrilegious and scandalous behavior of the crowd at the funeral out of the equation for a moment. Let's assume everybody is there behaving with no more or less dignity than your average large crowd. Now, you have a funeral for this person who has... Again, so far as, you know, again, there's there's a balance here. Sure, you're not supposed to require proof of, you know, reconciliation to the church necessarily, but the same canons also say that, you know, part of the thing that requires the refusal of an ecclesiastical funeral is the occasion of public scandal. So I think where there is obvious public scandal, it is incumbent to inquire and to make public, to mitigate the scandal, the reconciliation with the church. Um, so all that being said, assuming no other external factors, that is to say, outrageous behavior by attendees and, and things like that, 
Do you find the this funeral in theory to be more or less problematic and or scandalous than the ecclesiastical funeral granted to Bishop Howard Hubbard? Great question. Um, At which several bishops turned up and said warm words about the guy um, who was living in a state of manifest yeah, I don't grave think sin. I, I think one of them was the Archbishop of New York, by the way. Yes, and yeah. and, the, and his six, and the Bishop of Albany. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I I don't know that I feel comfortable measuring the relative scandal of each of them. We, we were very very clear in this in our conversation on this show that we were. That we felt that the Hubbard funeral was uh, was, was grotesque, inappropriate, and a violation of canon law. Violation of canon law. So and my question funeral, is: Is the but I mean, okay, so you don't want to make a call there, but one generated a lot of scandal, and the other did not, except for us, <laughs> seemingly. Yeah. So is this just a thing of you know, ooh, trans are icky? Is that is that really what this is about? Because if the if the morality and the law in terms of the pushback that people yeah. are kind of yeah that's a that's a good question is it just because it was a guy in a dress is that really what you know is that is that what this boils down to is that we other other manifest notorious grave sinners those who have abused ecclesiastical office in the worst possible way and are living publicly and notoriously and defiantly in sin with allegations of uh, unresolved allegations of sexual abuse, all that. Well, yeah, but you know how he was one of the boys. Give him a pass, you know. Hey. But this I is never like, heard, well, I, oh, I don't I, know. I did not hear how he was one of the boys. Give him a pass. A that was the tone. That uh, was what? the tone of the entire event of his ecclesiastical funeral. Was yeah, oh, he made okay. some mistakes. Oh, sure, nobody's In fact, the, perfect. The, the sort of eulogy for him was a kind of nobody's nerfect reflection on the fact that we all. We're all sinners. Um, Shout out to the concubine sitting in the front row. You know, I don't think there was. I think there was a, a, a studied a studied avoidance of eye contact with the concubine sitting in the front row. Okay. Um, in fairness, <laughs> in in something sort of perfected by a cleric of a certain kind who doesn't who wants to sort of be a, a hear no evil, see no evil kind of figure. I think that many people on the altar managed to avoid even noticing the existence of the concubine for the whole of the, the Hubbard funeral. And in fact, most of them seem think, to manage to avoid the existence of Howard Hubbard's life for most of the I, funeral. I but, think, weren't there people who complained Hubbard's family or afterwards about yeah. that and other things? Basically His nieces and nephews complained and said, canonized. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> how, how dare they not have gone further or something? Yeah. Here's, here's what I think. It, it seems clear to me. It, it is definitely true in the practice of the church. And I think, from my point of view, rightly so, it seems clear to me that um, a person who struggles with gender dysphoria and may, in the struggle with gender dysphoria, find themselves identifying with a gender which is inconsistent with their biological fact, sex, is not by that fact, ipso ure, disqualified from an ecclesiastical funeral. We, no, we can tell that. Not. We can tell that in part because the church actually doesn't catalog a list of of particular of particularities by which a person is disqualified from an ecclesiastical funeral and the well, a person uh, who suffers from gender, gender dysphoria can serve certain ecclesiastical functions. They can be a godparent in some circumstances. Yeah, they can be a godparent in the, according to the teaching of the according to the governance of the church and, and these kinds of things. Um, there's not a list of um, disqualifying particularities in universal law. There could be actually in particular law, but there's not a list of disqualifying particularities in universal law. Instead, what there is in universal law is an instruction to make a weighing exercise to consider 
the public sinfulness of the person, the manifest sinfulness of the person, and the public scandal of the person. So, um, so, so the minister has to like consider the circumstances of time and place before deciding what to do about the funeral, even of a manifest sinner. Because if you read this, um, uh, if you read this eleven eighty four three carefully, other manifest sinners who cannot be granted ecclesiastical funerals without public scandal of the faithful. So, at in principle, can manifest sinners have a funeral? if it would not generate public scandal. Yeah. Yeah, right? So there's this weighing exercise of the circumstances of time and place. And the things which generated public scandal, I think, in the case of Gentili, is that Gentili was an advocate for a, a, a slate of policy positions which run contrary to the teachings of the church, and an outspoken and active figure icon of the thing which Pope Francis calls gender ideology, right? So in in that sense, that plus I don't think you can take I don't think you can take out what happened at the funeral because um, can this person be granted an ecclesiastical funeral without uh, without public scandal of the faithful? Not that funeral, right? I mean, that's well, where the, okay, not the, that funeral. But again, to your earlier point, I mean, you, if you you have to parse the canon strictly, who is supposed to be subject to the weighing exercise of public scandal of the faithful, specifically those enumerated in Paragraph one, number three, other manifest sinners. Right. The right, weighing right. exercise of public scandal does not apply to number one, notorious right. apostates. And People so who apostate go in the thing, press and say, I assumed you I wanted me to take the apostate thing. I assumed you wanted me to take the apostate thing off the table so we could have a, a more interesting thing. The apostate oh, well, thing should can, have been a yeah. the apostate thing should have been a sine qua non. It seems obvious to me that the apostate thing should have been a sine qua non, unless there was some attestation to a sign of repentance. Sure. But that could yeah. be, yeah. But uh, but I'm just saying that it's it's not a question of apostates don't get funerals if there's public scandal. Apostates right, don't no, get apostates funerals don't because they're apostates. Right. Mm-hmm. Other manifest grave sinners can. There's a there's a weighing exercise in a gray area. Yeah, I'm sorry. I the, thought you wanted me to take the apostasy off the table for the sake of the. No, we can. I just want to make that absolutely clear. No, no, no. But there is not. There's not only a role for the rector of the church in which the funeral is to be celebrated. There's also a role here. Um, for the local ordinary, the either the oh, yeah. general is, or the diocesan bishop, right? If any doubt occurs, if there's uncertainty about whether to deny someone a funeral, the local ordinary is to be consulted and his judgment must be followed. That is, by the that, way, it's in this case, would be Cardinal Timothy. Are you looking or, at me, or the, Dolan? Oh, he's not the only local ordinary, right? He's the diocesan bishop. If they meant diocesan bishop, they would have said that. Legally speaking, it could also be Cardinal Dolan's vicar general. Um, who else would be a relevant local ordinary? If there is a territorial vicar for the for the island of Manhattan or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But what I just as a legal point, interesting about Canon eleven eighty four number two is um if any doubt occurs, the local ordinary is to be consulted and his judgment must be followed. That's a strange formulation to say the local ordinary is to decide, isn't it? Consultation is not usually deliberative. This is this might be the only occurrence of the code which says if any doubt occurs, the, the local ordinary is to have deliberative consultative power. Yes. But I mean, I think just, that's 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 an elegant drafting. But it's basically saying it's his call. It's his call, and it's always his call. And you know, you you might exercise um, sort of frontline judgment on the ground in real time in cases that aren't particularly hard to figure out, and the and the mind of the local ordinary would otherwise be clear, or it conforms to an obvious praxis of the place. Um, but basically, it's saying where there's a question. This is the local ordinary's call, and you've got to call him. Right. Yeah, that's right. So um, the takeaway, I think, for pastors is um, 
make sure that your parish isn't scheduling funerals without appropriate interrogatories and appropriate interventions and appropriate um, uh, and, and an appropriate opportunity for you to approve or deny. Now, you might say, "Look, I have a lot of funerals. The fact is, I can't um, I can't just be um, spending all my day approving or disapproving a funeral." Okay, but you have a lot of uh, if it's in your cathedral, too. I would say, yeah, that merit. Look at the list once a week. Yeah, that's right. Look at the list once a week, and at least have the have the pair staff organize it to tell you is this person a well known parishioner or not, and take a look at the knots to figure out what's going on. Yeah, diocesan bishops. Um, this is a great opportunity for you to send your pastors an instruction reminding them not to just sort of schedule funerals or delegate the schedule of funerals to the parish secretary willy-nilly without doing the due diligence required in law. Um, this is a learning opportunity. The Archdiocese of New York does not seem especially interested in the learning opportunity. I mean, let's just put it out there. The Archbishop of New York has been very clear that he wants to move on from this, that he thinks the cleric was a hero, and that that's the end of the story. D- despite a history of other problematic, similar, similarly well, problematic. He d- I mean, Cardinal and- Dolan seems to rely very heavily on the heroism of his clergy um, in tight <laughs> spots. Thank God they're there on the front line for him. Cardinal Timothy, why is everybody looking at Daddy Dolan? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a quote. It's not being facetious there, Flip. That's a quote in which when people were calling for the excommunication of uh, Andrew Cuomo in 2019, as Cuomo became this great advocate for the legal protection of abortion and oh, people are calling for his legal facilitator legal facilitator of abortion and uh, and 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 people called for sex communication dolan literally said on his radio show why is everybody look looking at daddy here look at daddy <laughs> that's the kind of heroic leadership we need excellencies this is a good time to send an instruction to your men Look, putting the, uh, urging them to avoid putting the whole diocese in this situation by doing appropriate due diligence. And that means that someone, whether that's someone at 1011, so to speak, at, uh, at the chancery, or whether that's someone in the past. You keep pa- saying 1011. I'm that's looking at Canon 1011. The, what is, what no, are, no, no. That's, that's, what they, that's what they call the chancery in New York because it's at. It's oh, at, the I can't power tower. Son, but yeah, they call it 1011 because it's. Yeah, I thought they were moving. They are moving. I don't. I'm. I'm curious to see whether they'll keep the 1011 nomenclature when they're no longer domiciled at 1011. Maybe they'll move to 1011 on another street. That would be convenient for them. It would anyway, uh, somebody sometimes has to be. This is a constant theme on this show. Somebody sometimes has to be the guy who says no, um, whether that's Father Pastor or local ordinary. Diocesan bishop, if you don't want to be the guy who says no, your vicar general is also a local ordinary. You can make him do it if you want. But somebody sometimes has to be the guy who says no. And it seems to me that much of the scandal that is unfolding in the Archdiocese of New York right now is a scandal. There are questions about whether or not, in fact, people were saying yes quietly and enthusiastically or how this came about. But much of this comes down to the fact that there was not someone who wanted to be, who was willing to say in these circumstances with a notorious apostate, the, the the answer that the church provides is no. Yep. Yeah. We're a little tight on time for a second subject, and so um, unless you have something brief which you would like to discuss, I have some codas to our discussion about liturgy last time because I've heard from a lot of people. 
Oh, I, if if people if people have things that they have said in response, I would be interested to hear them. Yeah, I suspect you've heard from people as well. Um, a few, though they were not communications. I feel would be safe to impart on the air. <laughs> so that's not that's very some strange. of them expressed their opinion either in solidarity with some of the things we said or or against it, but some of them did so in colorful terms. Well. Um, I heard from uh, probably a balance of people who wanted to say either that the reform of the reform uh, is not dead or that the reform of the reform is dead, and I should um, embrace that and and become a, a, a TLM guy. Um, I heard from a lot of people who's, who, who said, and I think this is fair, um, you know, that concession has to be made to the fact that a, a priest has to catechize liturgical change in the same way that the Novus Ordo itself should have been catechized uh, at the time of the implementation of the Missal of Paul VI. Like, I've, I've heard from a lot of people who say, look, a big mistake that was made with the Missal of Paul VI was that Father Pastor just went ahead and made a bunch of changes fast and loose and without catechesis and without consultation. Um, he didn't talk broadly enough to people. He, he, he wasn't appreciative enough of how shocking that would be, and that had— Or necessarily was, appreciative enough or— in agreement enough with what the council itself taught in Sacrosanctum right, 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 Concilium. Right, right. right, and so that led to um, the Religious long... Education Congress in Los Angeles? <laughs> yeah, to some extent, right. And and also to sort of long-simmering feelings of resentment in parishes or or, or things like that. And and so one of the things that I've heard from, from um, priests who are serious about liturgy consistently is um, we want not only to have uh, the substance of the liturgy more beautiful, and more observant of liturgical rubrics, but we also want to um, learn from the past and get there by a better methodology. And I think that's fair. I, I think that's a very fair and important point. In fact, we have seen Ed um, a number of times uh, over the past couple of years, bishops who have prohibited the celebration of the mass at Orientum. Now there's a legal question about whether the bishop even can prohibit the celebration of the mass at Orientum. And many people would say that he can't. I think we've, um, we've, we've done a couple of explainers on that. And the, the answer to the legal question seemed to be, no, you can't, but they're doing that, it anyway. That would seem to be the answer. And yes, they're doing it anyway. But when they do it, this ultra virus act, they tend to say, um, Look, we had guys come in who, this is not always the case, but it has tended to be the case in a number of these prohibitions. Look, we had guys come in who were assigned pastor, and then the next week they just switched everything to ad orientum, and the people had no idea what was going on, and they didn't manage change well, and that has led to these problems. And I think, you know, again- There's a reasonable that point there, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a reasonable point there. There's absolutely a reasonable point there. And yeah. you you have to catechize whenever you're going, well- <laughs> I here's the thing, I, I I'm familiar with and I agree with entirely the the strain of thought that says if you're going to make any kind of liturgical change in the parish, you have to catechize it beforehand. There has to be a long lead time. There has to be a lot of instruction, a lot of explanation, a lot of deepening of the faithful's understanding of the liturgy to understand both what they are doing now, what the what the change is going to be, and why, and why one is perhaps more apt than the other, or what is the what is it that the change is being made to better emphasize and all of this? I agree with that. But I would, I'd go one step further and say, we should just be catechizing on liturgy in the parishes anyway. Like mm-hmm. there is almost, I, I find it impossible to conceive of a, of a parish situation in this country or in any other, where it's like as an ordinary baseline of your adult Christian faith, you don't need ongoing formation in the liturgy. Right. Of course we do. We all do. Right. Right. So we should just be catechizing about the liturgy 
constantly as a baseline. And if you're doing that, sometimes the changes make themselves. You know what I mean? Like if you have, if you arrive in um, a parish as father pastor and you don't particularly like the liturgy, and you say, well, okay, what we need to do is we need to we need to move to Adore Antum. We need to, you know, move out of the vernacular and do the the ordinary form of the liturgy, but maybe in Latin and Adore Antum. We need to get, you know, we need to smarten some people up around here. Well, you could do that. I, I would argue that if you catechize well and appropriately, you don't have to be catechizing towards that goal. If you do it really well, the parishioners just start asking the questions on their own and saying, is the way we've been celebrating the sacraments in this parish really apt? Is it really reflective of the the theology and the teaching of Sacrosanctum Concilium? Is you know is, is there room for improvement? And then a sort of organic renewal or reform of the reform, if you like, can come from the parish itself. It doesn't necessarily have to be imposed. I think proper catechesis always leads to um, self reflection. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. Um, there's one other point that I wanted to make about liturgy, and then we got to wrap up here, and it was this. I talked about liturgy. This has bothered me all week, Ed. In, in our conversation last week, I talked about liturgy uh, and my desire for liturgy to be beautiful for a formational purpose. In other words, that it would um, elevate hearts and minds, and nobody gave me this feedback. I wish they had, actually. Um, the primary reason why any of us should want liturgy to be beautiful is, is because it is a God. better thing to give to God, right? <laughs> but I was I was actually, I was beating myself up for not having said that, and then I was waiting for somebody to call me out on it, and they didn't. But all of us, perhaps that's an indication that all of us all need a reminder. Because you're all modernists now. All of us need a reminder that we should want sacred worship to be beautiful because we should want to give beautiful things to God. And uh, we should want to, it is, we are made for worship, and it is right and fitting and proper for us to worship God and the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And we should want that to be the most beautiful expression of human culture that is possible. In other words, we should want to give God the most beautiful music that we can create. We should want to give God the most beautiful environment that we can create. We should want to give God the most beautiful sort of um, uh, sensible experience that we can create. We should want to give a beautiful thing to God. And even if no one is there to be formed by it, even if it's Father celebrant by himself, he should want the liturgy to be beautiful for, for God's sake. And not only for this formational thing. So, um, for God's sake, let's make beautiful liturgies. I'm glad that you got that off your chest. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and JD Production. Our executive producer is Kate Oliveira. I'm your host, JD Flynn. My podcasting partner is Ed Condon, who is looking better. You you seem to have recovered your color a little bit over the course of this hour. Um, you know, good 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 conversation will do that for you. <laughs> we'll be back next week. <laughs> <laughs>